Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. I want to begin uh, by saying thank you. Uh, Thank you for coming to hear a subject like grief. Uh, Because this is a subject that is not the easiest subject to engage. Uh, I would say that just by being here, uh, you have already told me uh, some significant things about yourself. Uh, Either one, uh, you are a person with a great deal of courage. Uh, who is willing to embrace a subject area that would just be much easier to avoid, Uh, or you're a person with a significant degree of compassion who is willing to enter into a very difficult area of somebody else's life for the purpose of bringing comfort and to help them not feel alone in the midst of that. Uh, And I want to just begin by commending you for that. Uh, Because when we we ask the question, what kind of courage and what kind of compassion does it take to, to engage a subject like this? It, I've often heard of grief described as being, on the, uh, being in the ocean and one wave hits and it washes over you and you wonder when you're going to get to come up for air and you get that moment of air and it's just then that another wave hits over you. Or, or maybe it's like having a wound and you think for a moment that the wound is going to quit throbbing and bleeding, and the moment when you begin to feel like you're beginning to get it together, it just gets hit again, and you wonder, how many times am I going to have to go through that? Or maybe it's just this constant of stepping between normal, everyday life, where I have to pay the bills and go to work and talk to people and make conversation, and then face the grief and the absence, and the loneliness. And it feels like I step between two completely and totally different worlds. Or maybe, maybe it just feels like that no matter how much faith I feel like I have in God, He is as far away as my loved one. Because my loved one feels very far away, and I'm told that my loved one is with God, and so God feels just as far away as the one that I love. And, and, it, and as much as I thought that I trusted Him, I begin to think, maybe I don't. Or I, I face this constant hearing of answers that just come across as cliches and platitudes, and I'm in this constant battle not to get angry or upset, just because it doesn't help what you're saying. And with that comes just the constant temptation to want to isolate myself and stay away from people so that they don't say any other well-intended thing that comes across as really insensitive where I have to bite my tongue and my tongue is already bruised. Or maybe because I'm just angry because time itself seems to be marching on. And time itself seems to dishonor my loved one by acting as if it's just going to continue on when that moment that was most important to me, I want to hold on to it. I want to be able to savor it. I want to be able to take something from it. But I can't. I just feel powerless. 
And I feel helpless because I don't know how to do grief, but I desperately feel like I need to. It's like being sick at your stomach, knowing that you need to vomit, but I can't make it do. And then I keep trying to put meaning on this experience that just defies having any lessons or purpose, but I'm trying to give it some meaning because things this big don't just happen. Please, tell me they don't, they can't. But yet every time that I try to put a meaning on it, every time I try to get an answer, it either just begs more questions, or it makes me out to be the bad guy, it makes God out to be the bad guy. None of the answers seem to give me the resolution that I wanted them to give. Or maybe I just feel like heaven's got a hostage. And the person that I love is taken from me and they are so far away and I get to the point that I'm resenting the place that I most wanted to be. Maybe I'm asking the question, who am I now? I mean, I knew who I was when I had this person with me. But now that they're gone and I don't have that role, that relationship, that rhythm of life, Who am I now? Maybe I'm just sorting through my goals and dreams, trying to see which ones still fit, which ones still apply, which ones can I cling to, which ones were erased. And I'm making all kinds of decisions. It's not as if I get to do just grief. At at the moments when we're grieving and so many things, there are so many decisions that I'm faced with and I'm just not in the emotional place or condition to handle this right now. And I'm trying to figure out how all my friendships are affected by this loss. Do they know how to relate to me? Do I know how to relate to them? Do I even feel safe being close to somebody anymore because being close is what got me hurt in the first place? I'm learning how life can have a rhythm again. I mean, sleeping, eating, working, playing, all of that went out the window. How do I pray? How do I pray when the one thing that I want most is something that I know I'm not going to get? And there's this part of me that I just want to rush through grief. I want to get it over with. I want to, but I don't even know where to begin. I walk through my day and I'm just realizing... How many little things remind me of the one that I lost and the one that I love? It can be the sound of a voice. It can be a name. It can be a song on the radio. It can be a food on my plate. It can be anything. And I feel like my entire life is booby-trapped with these grief explosives. And I'm just wondering when I'm going to step on the next one. And then there's the fear that if I don't keep replaying this over and over again, my memories are all I have left. And if I don't play them, I'm going to lose the only thing that I have. And all of this makes me feel very lonely. But I'm scared to love again. Loving is what got me hurt in the first place. And it seems like the solution for this would be to let somebody get close, but I don't want to feel like I'm replacing the one that I loved, and I don't want to place myself in a position to get hurt again. And I don't know what to do with that. And in the midst of all of this, I'm just thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? 
It shouldn't be this hard. I'm an adult, right? I'm a grown-up. I'm constantly forgetting things and just wondering, am I losing my mind? And at this point, I begin to realize why people start doing crazy, self-destructive, addictive things when they're going through the grieving process. Because I'm looking for anything where I can push pause, where I can push eject, where I could push any button to make any of this better. And, And that's why I say, I commend you for your courage and your compassion that you would come Because chances are, nothing that I shared with you is new to you. It's just somebody finally said it in public. Somebody finally said it out loud. It felt good for it not to echo in my head, but I still don't know what to do with it. And our goal in the time that we spend together is to help you figure out how to process those kinds of experiences. And you're going to hear me use several types of language throughout the evening. Uh, You're going to hear me compare grief to a journey. Uh, And it's a journey that that changes our life story and affects our sense of identity. And hopefully as we go through the evening and you hear journey and story and identity, the way that those things interact with grief will begin to make more sense to you. Uh, And we're going to do this as we go through a nine-step journey. Uh, And this nine steps isn't meant to be a nice, neat little process, but it's just meant to give us some hooks in the midst of an experience that feels like Teflon and nothing will stick anymore. And the first of those steps is just simply to prepare ourselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually to face our suffering. And to get us thinking in that direction... Uh, Paul Tripp talks about the experience of death. He says, death is so deeply emotional and stunningly final that there is nothing you can do ahead of time to sail through the moment of loss. And he, he counsels us, he says, don't feel guilty or embarrassed if you feel unprepared to face it. There is no way to prepare for what you are going through. But just knowing that may help you. And so when you see step one, and it says prepare, don't freak out and think, I've already messed it up. It's just saying, this is the place where we begin. Because oftentimes we feel like, you know what, we prepare for big things. Why didn't I prepare for this? And part of it is because we can't. Grief is intrusive. And he talks up there, he says, don't feel guilty or embarrassed. And as we go through understanding grief, emotions like guilt or embarrassment or fear, uh, those are what I might call emotional pollutants. They, They contaminate and infect our grief. It's as if the grief itself is the wound. And then these things come in and the grief itself is hard enough if we don't bring in these elements of false guilt or a sense of embarrassment that I don't want people to know that this is this hard for me. And part of our goal is to begin to be able to pull those things away from our grief and to understand why they don't belong in there 
so that we can face grief by itself, which is hard enough as it is. And that's what we're going to refer to as um, grieving cleanly. Now you might, you might ask the question, how much can a seminar like this help me? Uh, and I, I think Judy Bloor does a good job of, of setting our expectations for that. She says, grieving cannot be completed in a lesson, uh, a lecture, or an appointment. And so it's not as if we're going to take these next three hours and that this is going to be a concentrated remedy that makes it all better. Now she does say such structured commitments can be useful parts within the whole of helping relationship. But grieving takes place over a long period of time. And we'll talk about how long typically grief may take on different factors. And helping must also be a process over time. Grief does not usually happen on a schedule. It, if you came here today wanting a version of get over my grief by Friday, to go on the bookshelf with having a new kids by Friday and having a new husband by Friday, and that, that is not what this is and it's not what it can be. Uh, that would honestly just be a gimmick that might give you a sense of hope that we could get through this as quickly as you want to, but when Saturday hit and it didn't deliver, you would feel like you failed or had been let down again. And I don't want to do that. And if we approach this seminar or any other content that way, we will begin to beat ourselves up with a message of comfort and hope we will begin to feel like we failed, like we didn't get it, like we didn't take enough notes, like we didn't listen well enough, like I just wasn't smart enough, like I should be able to figure this out. And I would just simply say, no, it's not like that. It might sound awkward, but in some ways, if I were going to compare our time this evening to something, I would compare it to the talk uh, that a parent might have with a preteen about puberty and the parent talks about the changes that they're going to go through not so that the parent is saying you should start growing hair in weird places and you should make your voice crack at awkward times so that you'll be embarrassed we don't talk about those things as if it's something that we're supposed to do but by understanding what the process of puberty is like hopefully it does two things one, it makes those changes less fearful. I don't wonder if I'm going to turn into a werewolf. I don't wonder if my voice is always going to do this. And so one, it makes it less fearful. And two, it makes it more likely that I will invite somebody into that struggle with me. I will talk about it. And if we could talk about what we hope to do in the context of, of our time together... It's those two things. It's to talk about the process of grief well enough that when that thought crosses my mind, am I going crazy? That I begin to realize that's exactly what we talked about would be a common experience of what I would be going through. It is less fearful. And that it is easier for people, for me to invite people into that experience um, because I feel like it is 
something that they can relate to, that it is not something that's just going on with me. H. Norman Wright takes us a little further in terms of thinking about grief. He makes an important statement. He says, you don't need to be fixed. Cars and refrigerators break down. People don't. We shed tears. We cry. Or we weep. We were created to cry. It's a fitting response to sorrow. Grief brings you into the world of the unknown. Grieving is a disorderly process. You won't control it, nor can you schedule its expression. And that first part there, that that the title of this seminar is not Overcoming Grief. Other seminars that we do might share a title like Overcoming Anger, Overcoming Anxiety, Overcoming Depression. But by the nature of how we're describing this, we're saying this this is a different kind of struggle. I would say it this way. Grief is not primarily an emotional struggle. It doesn't fit in that class of depression and fear, of guilt. Grief is primarily a struggle of identity that comes with very powerful emotions. But one of the big questions of grief is who am I now? If you ask me who I am, I would begin to define myself this way. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a friend. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. Each of those roles can be taken from me through death. And when when that has become part of my day-to-day life, how I introduce myself, how I organize my schedule... And then I'm left with the question, who am I now? And that's why I would say that as we come to say, what am I doing in this journey of grief? I'm trying to figure out who my identity is. And we often, in the, in the midst of this, we, instead of thinking of it that way, we think of it in terms of sin language. We ask questions like, What did I do so wrong? Why is God punishing me? What lesson did I need to learn that God would take me through this to get my attention? I've learned blank. Did God really need to take name in order for me to get that? Or the feeling of of grief may just be so intense that I wonder, did I put this person before God? But most of that is just us trying to think of grief within a sin paradigm. And oftentimes why we do that is because it gives us a sense of control. Because if I did something to cause it, as bad as that is, I could do something to stop it from happening again. I could protect myself. I could learn my lesson and build some kind of hedge of protection. And that's why if you look in the front of your notebook, we build our seminars around two paradigms. One is a sin paradigm that has its own set of nine steps. The other is a suffering paradigm. As we go through this grief material and you see those nine steps starting with prepare, this material is built around 
uh, a suffering paradigm. And I think as we go through the material, the relevance, the relevance of that will become more apparent to you. Uh, J.I. Packer brings us to another point here. He says, everyone who loves will experience grief sooner or later. And the greater the love, the greater the grief when the time of loss arrives. The loneliness of grief is one of the worst and most draining things about it. And if we're honest, one of the most dangerous too. And in this, one of the things that we see is that grief is a secondary choice or a secondary reaction. The primary choice is whether or not I will love. And once I have loved, I am basically powerless about whether or not I grieve. And that's part of what is so hard about grief, is that I feel like my heart is running free without me. It is bleeding and I have no control over it. And the choice was made when we decided to love. And this is true with with most things. When we love and invite someone or something, not just a person, maybe it's a job, a role, a place, a church, a group, a season of life, when we invite that into our life, it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of our identity. And when it is taken away, we will grieve. And if your instincts take you to a place of, okay, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, what, I, I didn't, uh, what else was I supposed to do? That's where I would just say, that is that instinct that we have to think about this in a sin paradigm, where there's something I should have done different to make it stop. And it, it oftentimes takes us a while to embrace grief as a form of suffering. Now, in terms of this first step of preparing, uh, I think Bob Kellerman talks about the place where it is most difficult for most of us. He says, many people find that the hardest place, the hardest part of the grief journey is simply getting started. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so numb. I'm so confused. I don't even know where to begin. And in the content of that first chapter, Uh, We talk about six things that are an important part of preparing yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually. Uh, The first three of those just have to do with our health. And it will make recommendations about sleep and about diet and about exercise. And what I want you to get from that is that grief is exhausting. It is draining. It is physically depleting. If you've ever had the experience of being in the bathroom and you turn on the hair dryer and the lights dim because there is something in the room that's taking a surge of power, that's what grief does to our body. Grief is something that takes a surge of energy and our immune system dims like the lights. And oftentimes what will happen is Shortly after we go through an intense grief, depending on health and other factors, we will go through a time when we get sick a lot. And if we don't understand the physical component of grief, then we begin to feel like this is just one more oppressive thing bearing down on me when I can't take it anymore. Where is God? Why isn't He protecting me? When He was pulling energy so that we could sustain under grief, 
but it came at the expense of our immune system. And so a very practical thing is to take a vitamin C booster. If you're loving somebody who's going through a grieving time, it's not a bad thing early on to show up with that and just say, look, I love you and I know how hard and taxing it is going to be. And whenever you take one of these in the morning, know that I'm praying for you. And to address the physical side of that and to give them a reminder that you plan in their day. Another part is just the decision making that comes. Like we talked about in the monologue at the beginning. Rarely do we get to just grieve. We are faced with so many decisions that we rarely ever have to make other than at a time at a major loss. And we can feel like we're drowning in the decisions, not just the emotions. And my recommendation there is to put off what decisions can be put off. And one of the things that you're advised to do in a chart there is just to make a list of decisions that have to be made and then place them, whether they have to be made this week, this month, then the next three months, and the next six months, and the next year. That way you can just put them there and focus on the task at hand of grieving for a moment. Another important part of preparation uh, that sometimes gets overlooked because it's part of the planning that goes on is the ceremony. The ceremony of a funeral can be a powerful part of the healing process. It's a time when we gather all of our family and friends together so that, one, they can encourage us and support us and show us that they're there for us, but two, just so that they can know, so that we don't have to face the question about what's going on and we have to retell that story dozens and dozens of times every time we see a new person. It gives us a mental marker that allows us to acknowledge the permanence, permanence and realness of what's happened. But what happens in many cases is that there's not a ceremony. Uh, a couple of those. Uh, one is when somebody loses an unborn child uh, to miscarriage or other complications that may occur. And they don't feel like they get to grieve. It begins to feel like I had a medical procedure instead of I lost a child. And that's why in the context of your notebook in Appendix A, uh, there is a ceremony uh, that small groups can give for one another when, they, when somebody in their group loses an unborn child. And there's also a program that we're going to be developing that pairs moms who have had that experience with other moms so that you can be less alone. But... But the loss of an unborn child isn't the only time when we don't get a ceremony. There's, there's the non-tangible griefs. What happens when I lose my innocence to abuse? What happens when I lose a dream? Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a major injury that results in chronic pain that doesn't allow me to do what I want to do. What happens when I lose stability? and the ability to make choices in my own life? Or what about the living death of divorce? Those are all powerful and real forms of grief that don't have a ceremony. And that's why in Appendix B, 
uh, we take the time to look at each of those four areas, the loss of innocence, the loss of a dream, the loss of stability, or the living death of divorce, and say, here is material that will help you orient to using what we're going to talk about in the rest of this journey to apply to those kinds of griefs. And so ceremony is part of preparing. Another part is community. Of having people around me, not having to face this alone. And that, that's why in Appendix C, we have a 12-month care plan for small groups. Because too often what happens, and I don't think any of us do this intentionally, but we do a real good job of caring for about two weeks after somebody has a loss. We bring you meals, we mow your yard, we do everything that we can think of to do. But then after two weeks, things get quiet. And for the person who's grieving, the unspoken rule is, when I'm no longer supported, it doesn't feel socially acceptable to talk anymore. And I begin to feel very alone in my grief. And again, we don't do that on purpose, and that's why we've created here a 12-month plan that hopefully is not something that you, when you look at it, it feels overwhelming, but you say, as a small group, we could do this. A few of us could sign up at different points during this process and one of us could agree to go through this material for the first six months and we could make sure that the people within our small group are not alone as they go on this journey of grief. But if we're not careful, we can think more of grief, more of community uh, initially than, than it feels like it gives. And one of the things I appreciate about C.S. Lewis is his honesty. Uh, and in his memoirs that he wrote uh, at the time when he lost his wife, uh, he says, there's, there's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. Or maybe better said, to even want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. All I can think of is my wife and wanting her back and what everybody else is saying is just second to that. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. In grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from one phase to the next, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope on a spiral? And here we would admit... Community won't make it better, but isolation will make it worse. And, and if, we're, if we're in that moment of hurt and pain, and we say, I tried that, it just didn't work. The pain of being isolated is much more intense. One of the other things that we see in the quote here from C.S. Lewis is just how repetitive grief is. And even as we talk about these nine steps, I don't want you to think of them linearly. As if we just kind of go one, doom, 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 doom to nine and then we're finished. But think of it much more as a ball bearing. And then in each of these moments, I'm going to go through probably each of these nine steps. And each of the little balls within the ball bearing are going to have to turn with each of the difficult experiences that I have. And overall, my life is turning and these things are becoming more real and more true, I'm learning to trust them as the gospel takes root even in the midst of the suffering that I'm going through. And I think one of the places where we see this most is in the Psalms. 
Because if you notice, the Psalms are not the most efficient book in the Bible. The Psalms are highly repetitive. And the Psalms are not the place where God is necessarily speaking to us. The Psalms are the place where God is giving us words to speak back to Him. And that's why He made the Psalms very repetitive. Uh, just a sample of that, Psalm 136. It's, 20, it's 26 verses of a statement about life, and then the refrain, His steadfast love endures forever. And then another statement about life, and His steadfast love endures forever. And another statement about life, and His steadfast love endures forever. God wrote the words that we would speak back to Him that way because He knew how repetitive the experience would be because the goal is not to learn a theological fact or to acknowledge a historical reality, but to assimilate grief into my life story and identity in a way that is bearable and that allows me to still see God as good and loving and so, again, just reiterating here at the end of step one, we are learning a process more than we are gaining a, a cure. 